Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Within the rich history of the holiness movement, there have been several men whose preaching could easily fit into the category of orator. L.B. Hicks was one of those. This is a message that he preached over 50 years ago, and it's simply titled, You Are His Witnesses. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent message. thoroughly enjoyed the service last evening. My heart thrilled with the remarks of Bishop Robinson about uh, Miss White. I felt led out in prayer for the bishop last night that God would make this splendid young gentleman an outstanding holiness bishop of Methodism. But I have a deep feeling that Methodism needs on the horizon and in the zenith right now a good, strong, holiness voice. And it struck me forcibly that in Bishop Frank Robinson, there was everything there to meet that requirement. And I have given myself to prayer that he will receive that special call from God to champion the cause of what we have and love here at Indian Springs. I found out this morning that in Camp Cavanaugh, that another friend of mine that was just elected bishop at Junaluska, the last general conference, Ed Tullis, was doing the preaching this week in the camp that the bishop mentioned last night. I do trust that the camp meeting circuit of America will never lose its meaning and never lose its power, and that God will spread it out in these days. I invite your attention, but before I do, let me say one other thing. I thoroughly appreciate the preaching of my co-laborers and colleagues on the platform. Especially last night did I appreciate the message by Dr. Lentz. The way he approached the afterwards or the aftermath of holiness that has been so sadly overlooked in holiness churches and in other sections of the holiness movement. We've gone in for emotionalism and for cleansing, and that is as it should be. But we have forgotten the process and the product and the productivity of the great experience of entire sanctification. Consequently, I felt the Lord led me early this morning to the message of the morning. And I'm reminded that the prophet says that we learn by going over things. Here a little, there a little, line on line, precept on precept, 
line on line, precept on precept. One of the greatest professors I ever had in my life was a professor in philosophy at the University of the South. Dr. McNaughton held a PhD degree from Columbia University in philosophy. And in those lectures, if there were three lectures a week at an hour apiece, he would go over one theme three times on three days and tell it a different way every time until you fastened it in your mind. Then he would say, write it down. And a few of his mannerisms fastened it in our minds and in our hearts. And I would say to you this morning that the message I am about to bring led of the Holy Ghost is a message that I believe the Lord wants to fasten on your heart. Consequently, I urge you to give a special heed to the reading and to the exposition, for the reading was given by inspiration through St. Luke from the Holy Ghost. And I trust with all my heart and strongly believe that the exposition thereof will be given by myself under the unction of the Holy Ghost. Turning in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke and down to the 44th verse. As you are finding it, let me bring you up to date on this scene. Behind the Lord Jesus is Golgotha. Behind him is the preaching to the spirits in prison. Behind him is the tomb. Behind him is the resurrection from the dead. Behind him are various conversations with the disciples in his post-mortem ministry. Now he comes this morning, in our words, to give them their final instructions. He has led them out toward the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a tremendous spot in sacred geography. You'll find it mentioned all down across the New Testament. And the ascension of our Lord took place from the Mount of Olives. The beginning of the triumphal march into Jerusalem took place and was interrupted, but it took place from the base of the Mount of Olives. And when he comes back again, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. Tremendous place that God has raised up there in that little mountain, just outside Jerusalem, and God still has it in his mind. Now as he gathered them around him, here are some of the words that he said. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. I pause there long enough to comment this, that the only Bible in existence at that time and the only Bible that Jesus was taught as a little boy in the synagogues was the Bible made up of the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, made up of the Psalms, which is the poetry of Israel, and the prophets, which are the preachers of Israel. Then he said, in that I want to explain to you just one line of thought, the things that were written by Moses even back in the law, the things that were sung about by the psalmist in their poetry, and the things that have been prophesied concerning me and what I came into the world to do. Then he goes on to the 45th verse. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. There is no more important verse in all the Bible than that 45th verse of the 
24th chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke. You cannot understand the Bible until the Holy Ghost reveals its meaning to you. It is the textbook that he wrote, and he is the only person authorized by Almighty God to interpret it and to tell it. Men cannot go aside and ever learn by any amount of man-made learning to interpret the Bible. They may interpret Hinduism, they may interpret Confucianism, they may interpret the philosophy of pessimism and optimism and meliorism, they may be experts on Hume and Schopenhauer, but no man can interpret the Bible until the Holy Ghost speaks. And if you do not understand it, just keep going before him in prayer and saying, Lord, you open my understanding. You opened my mind. I can't get this. I have read and underscored and read other authors and read commentaries and gone back and back and for years have had verses of Scripture that remain dark and dense to me when suddenly in the middle of the night I would be awake in meditation and suddenly it would click and it would fall apart just like the bloom on a rose opening petal after petal. And it never after that troubled one other time. Did you know that you can't find God until the Holy Ghost opens your heart? And of all that crowd that Paul preached to in Ephesus, just one little woman, the Lord opened her heart. What became of the rest? Perhaps went to hell. I have preached the same sermon and seen men stand and one break down and quiver and cry and the other one chew chewing gum and look out the window standing side by side. Same message, about the same IQ, about the same intelligence, about the same age, same truth, same preacher, same place. But one would stand there as cold as that microphone. The other one would break up and come to the altar and the other one would walk out and maybe go away and die and go to hell and never find God. What? The Holy Ghost opened one man's understanding and heart and didn't the other. Well, Brother Hicks, are you preaching coordination and predestination? I'm just preaching the Bible. No, I do not believe in that form of predestination and I'll clear that up right now for you. That says this man goes to hell and this one to heaven. But I am saying to you that if you short-circuit the Holy Ghost, you'll be damned. And I want to tell you that mother's tears and daddy's prayers and persuasion and pulling of personal workers can never lead a soul to Jesus Christ without the Holy Ghost. And I am thoroughly disgusted with some forms of so-called evangelism that I call IBM evangelism that you can take 25 cards with names and addresses on them and by the law of average win three of them every night you go out. Away with that junk. If the Holy Ghost does not accompany you to a place, there'll be no good done. As a pastor across a long number of years in big churches and small, I had a rule of running down every call that came to my study. Made hundreds and thousands of calls. Every time there came a call from the hospital, I was there within the next few minutes, a few hours. They called me and said, Brother Hicks, my daddy's not saved, he's dying. My mother's not saved, she's dying. 
My daughter's been in a wreck and she's semi-comatose and she's going to die if something doesn't happen. I've gone. I've gone into intensive medical. I've gone inside the emergency wards. I've gone inside the rooms and the wards of the hospital. I've walked in and talked to some of those people and if I had been talking to the bed that has been as much response. I keep visiting Dr. Hames and one man I visited every day for nearly three months. And after I had just about given up, one afternoon I walked in and when I stepped in the door I felt something. I walked over to him and without many words I said, you know you're a sick man, you're going to die. He said, yes sir. I said, I believe this afternoon you can get into God. He said, I do too. And broke up and began to pray. Nothing I did. The Holy Ghost finally broke him down when God got ready. Now back to my text. He opened their minds and showed them what Moses said, what the psalmist said, what the prophet said concerning him. After he had quoted it to them, and I don't know how long this discourse took, he then secondly opened their minds that they might understand it, and it became as clear as day to them. No more questions. That was it. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. Now that word behooved is a tremendous word. In other words, he could not avoid the cross. I read a long dissertation from a learned pen trying to prove that if the Jews had accepted Jesus, there would have been no need of the cross. Foolishness. Utter abject craziness. The devil wants nothing better than a bloodless, sacrificeless, crossless religion. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It behooved Christ to suffer. It's amazing how Christ kept a certain schedule. He must needs go through Samaria on a journey to Jerusalem one time. Now, there were other ways to go to Jerusalem except going through Samaria. But not for him that day. He had to go. It was settled before the foundation of the world that a woman that had been living with five men without the benefit of marriage pretty much sounds like America today, doesn't it? Divorced some of them. The one she had then, she never had even married it. And God had that woman come with that earthen water pot at exactly that minute after the disciples had left the master and he and that woman sat alone on that curbing stone and she got saved. That's why I had to go through Samaria. Keep that one woman out of hell. This is a date with destiny. There's somebody out here this morning that's mind is confused about holiness. And you thought and thought but the Lord brought you and sat you right where you're sitting right now. Lined it up. Whoever's on that side and that side isn't a happenstance. He ordained for me to preach. He gave me the message. I stand here with my left hand in an open book, my right hand lifted to heaven, my eyes are fixed on this middle tier saying, open your heart, my dear. This is your date with destiny. You can get in. After it behooved him to suffer, it behooved him to rise from the dead. If that grave could have helped, held him, it would be the biggest farce that history has ever recorded. 
I heard Bishop Moore say years ago on this platform that if Jesus Christ wasn't everything he claimed to be, he was the biggest farce that ever crossed the pages of history. That's true. If he didn't rise from the dead, my brethren and my sisters, there was no need of his dying. He was not a martyr. He was the Son of God that died on the cross and rose again by the power of the Holy Ghost and is alive today at the right hand of God and his representative, his vice-regent, is here on this earth in the name of the Holy Ghost abiding in temples of human flesh. What? He had to rise. That tomb could have held him throw your Bible away and quit. If I were a social gospel preacher with nothing better than to preach better wages and better hospitals and better schools, I'd just throw it all away and join some educational society and forget there was such a thing as a God for the reason, if there isn't, redemption. The state can build hospitals. The state can beat us building universities and colleges. Got all the money there is. Big foundations can pour money into those things. But no man can build a place where men find God but the Holy Ghost. You heard about that little Korean grandmother after the bombing, bombing in Seoul had let up, standing out in front of a Protestant mission, tears running down her old yellow, dirty, wrinkled face, holding a little crippled grandchild by the hand. And the missionary walked out and she said, Sir, is this the place where they repair hearts? can run a place where men can repair their hearts. It behooved him to suffer and oh how he suffered. I read and he said one of the great miracles of Calvary was that only God could pour the sufferings of a damned soul for eternity in three hours on a cross. God help us. But grave couldn't hold him. He split the tomb and walked out. Now he said, 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now I have given you the outline that I'd like to press in on you now. What is the message that the preacher has to preach? I've heard book reviews mentioned several times. Gentlemen, I'm not guilty. In the pulpit, I've given them elsewhere. I used to go to Blazer High School in Ashland once every year and lecture on the Civil War. One year it would be Jeb Stewart, quite a favorite of mine. Another year Stonewall Jackson, quite a favorite of mine. I had black and white in my classes and neither side wanted to throw me out. They listened. I love to lecture on some themes, sometimes not Bible. But I want to tell you there's just one message in the pulpit and that is the preaching of the death, burial, resurrection and effectual work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His passion and suffering was on the cross. His resurrection was in the tomb of Adam His ascension to heaven and the dispatch of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. But after that he said, now you go out and preach repentance and remission in my name. That sets it up. Much of our evangelism today has no repentance to it. 
I believe in all my heart for a decision, but I do not believe a decision without repentance. And I'll tell you, if you get an old-fashioned Holy Ghost-sent repentance, it's the next thing to the labor of childbearing. And if you get under that kind of conviction, you'll be like Zacchaeus. You'll not only want to straighten up the backs, but you'll want to pay a little interest on it. I believe in restitution. You stole something, you better straighten it out. You lied on somebody, you better go apologize. If you fought holiness, you better apologize to God. Oh, my brethren, repentance. And if you get repentance over, the old preachers used to say, Brother Fuller, that once repentance is done, faith automatically takes hold. And there's not much error in that. Well, why does it take me praying so long? You've got the everlasting much grit and dirt and rust in your gears of faith. They won't turn. And it takes God with a lot of penetrating oil of repentance to get you loosened up to where faith can take hold. You get your repentance done and the gears loosened up and synchronized and your hands roll, raise up, and the fire falls. Glory. I'm about to get blessed. 48th verse, he drave the nail in, turned it around, bent it over, and drove it back from the other side, called clinching it. In that 48th verse, he said, and ye are witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what things, Savior? Witness of the fact that I died on a cross. Witness of the fact that I got out of the grave one day by my own power. Witness of the fact that I said that repentance and remission of sins be preached. The only message is that and the only messengers are ye. And in the original Greek, that word ye is in plural. And when you see it translated in the King James Version, ye always means plural and you means individual. So he spread this thing out not only on over 11 disciples, one of them had already hanged himself, but he spread it out over Indian Springs on this Thursday in this camp meeting and said, you are my witnesses. It'll die if you don't witness it. No, let me back up. You thought that was a slip of the tongue. Maybe it was, but it isn't true. It won't die if you won't witness it. He'll raise up somebody else to. And if that Methodist church on that corner loses the flame and the zeal of John Wesley and Francis Asbury and William McKendry and Hallelujah and Hamline and the rest of them, then God will step down and pick out a little old country Baptist church and preach the same truth from the pulpit out of Presbyterian. I got a sermon outlined the other day when God's animals preached. That's not, it's not facetious either. The braying ass, the crowing cock, and the screaming eagle. Every one in the Bible. The ass preached to a backslidden prophet. The cock crew to a backslidden apostle. And in the last days of the tribulation, a great eagle. And the Greek word there is not angel. It's a mistranslation to make it angelos. It's the word auri, meaning eagle. A great eagle flew in the midst of the heaven, crying three words, Whoa! 
physician Lucas, these three words can all be translated witness. One of them is the word he used in Luke, the first chapter and the second verse, for eyewitness, a tope taste. Another one is a word that is theatai, which means a theater. And a third one is maturis, that he used here, which is a legal term. Now, the autoptase, he did not use it here because that means to go firsthand, get a topsy from it, and examine it just right down minutely and separate each point. Now, the apostles saw that. We don't. We've never been back there. The next word, pieti, means just going to a theater to witness a play. They sat down on the cross and watched him there just gawking observers. Nine-tenths of the church today are just watching the show. You come for amusement, you leave in amazement. You, you, you just watch somebody else do it and say, that's fine. No more than watching one of the Wagnerian operas or the Shakespearean dramas. You just went to see the show. You had a little catharsis and your emotions were released and you went away feeling better but you haven't really seen the thing yet. Then he stepped down to my two race here, and it's a witness way. He said, sit down here on this witness chair. You tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, because it ought to be told. And any lawyer will tell you a witness is a poor witness when you have to worm it out of him in cross-examination. He'll lie if you don't watch him. But you get a fellow that knows it and wants to tell it, and he tells it like it is. And he said, that's what I want you to do. You've got it in your heart. Now get out of here and tell it. Man, that stirred that bunch up. Young Philip, just like a young dog, screaming at the leash, and he is going to get out and just tear the devil to pieces. Thomas said, I doubted him once, and saw him and put my hand, reached it out, and never did touch him. I saw it was him then. I'll never do it. And Peter said, you know, I'll get out and tell it. And I imagine the Lord guided them with his eye. He looked at Thomas, and Thomas remembered when he thought Jesus was an identical twin, and it was the other twin walking around and not the dead one, and he remembered that. And that's in the Greek New Testament. Didymus means an identical twin. That's what they call Thomas. Come on here now. That is a little aside, but let's move on up. And he looked at Philip, and Philip had been kind of a vacillating young fellow. He looked at Peter and remembered just about 40 days before a crowing cock. Peter did too. Said, you fellows are not ready to witness yet. You go back in the city of Jerusalem and tarry till you be endued with power from on high. That word, kathaizo, meaning sit, 
is a word that means just go back somewhere and sit down. Don't do a thing on earth. Just go sit down and get quiet. Quit this infernal fidgeting and working at the job. I saw a Baptist bulletin board one day and my friend had on it that he's going to preach Sunday night on the damnable doctrine of doing. And how good that sounded. Saved by grace through faith, not by what you do. You get people running around in a tizzy and a fair trying to do, 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 do. And they get tense and all tied up in a knot and they do a lot. They hang statistics on their walls and the idolatry of statistics. God have mercy on us. Come on here now. Glory be to God. He said, you go back and get ready to tell this. When he went up and left them, he reminded them, you go over there in the city now and tarry till you receive the promise of the Father that I gave you. And as they tilted their little chins back, and it rose higher and higher till the billowing white clouds that the Bible said are the dust of God's feet closed him out of their, their sight. They went back to Jerusalem. They got in that upper room. They stayed continuing in the temple praising God and rejoicing. They was afraid to get out of sight of it. He had opened their understanding so no longer did they guess what he meant. They knew what he meant. They were determined. And that day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts, suddenly, there came a sound as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house. Where they were kneeling? No, sir. Where they were talking? No, sir. Where they were preaching? No, sir. Where they were lying down? No, sir. Where they were sitting, disobeying him to the letter. And they got filled with the Holy Ghost. Some say Pentecost is always dispensational. A part truth, but a part truth's a dangerous truth. It's not only dispensational, but continuous to everyone. And the signs that took place on the day of Pentecost were an augurial tied on to dispensationalism. But when he comes today, the inauguration's already taken place and the inaugural signs are not there. But when he comes, he comes to get them ready for but one thing, to be witnesses to the fact that he suffered, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that God Almighty will remit sins when men repent. That's it. Now in closing, there are three ways that men can witness. One of them is by uh, declamation. That's what I'm doing right now, preaching. One of them is by dialogue. That's where two or three or two get together, like the Philip and Eunuch. And Philip witnessed to him by dialogue. Then there is demonstration where maybe a word may never be spoken, but a constant, daily living it out. Living it out. Living it out. Don't you criticize the fellow that can't get up and make a speech. I appreciated what you said about that man that just had a chill, Dr. Johnson says this morning it was, and couldn't pray in public, yet one of the greatest holiness men he ever knew. Scared him to death, you call on him to pray in public. Don't condemn that fellow. Some people can't make a public speech. My wife thought she couldn't, and they elected her missionary president of my district, and she does a pretty good job, but scares her to death. 
She just has it marked down, and she goes through that little line. But I, I never was a holier woman in shoe leather than my wife. Then there are other fellows, you know, that are just adept at witnessing in a dialogue. They can just sit down and talk to you, and the Holy Ghost helps them, and you feel it, and you get so hungry. Then there are other people that just can't do more than much of any of them, but, brother, they get out there in that old steel mill, and that weaving mill behind that desk, and just live it. Amen. Nothing can upset that. They just live it. And some fellow goes to church and hears it in the pulpit, and Christian worker comes to him tonight, next night, and talks to him at home, and he's been working with a fellow 20 years that's been living it, and he said, man, it works three ways. I've got to get it. Glory. I remember sitting down on a plane one night in Atlanta, Georgia, when I was pastoring in Orlando, Florida. Rough-looking night, clouds hanging in. I buckled my seatbelt. I reached in my briefcase and bought a different version of a New Testament that I'd never seen before in that translation, and I'd bought it a week before in St. Louis. And I opened it up and was sitting there looking at it, and I was aware suddenly there was a person standing in the aisle, and I looked up, and the stewardess, Eastern Airlines gray uniform, was standing there looking down at me. She said, sir, is that the revised standard version of the Bible I've heard so much about? I said, no, ma'am. But it is another version, and I was just looking it over. She said, you're a preacher? And I said, yes, ma'am. So when I get this plane loaded and everybody tied down, and all my checklists run, I'm going to leave this seat vacant. I'm not going to put anybody in it. I want to sit with you. I've got to talk to you. We got airborne and disappeared above the clouds, and she came back, sat down beside me, looked at me in tears on her lashes, and as we rode over the Okefenokee Swamp that night and that plane heaved and pitched in a South Georgia storm, she said, I'm a child of a shouting South Georgia Baptist mother. And I had religion one time, but I got away from home. I've gone out in the world and I've done everything a girl could do. I'm so hungry to get back, I don't know what to do. I talked to that little girl for about an hour and a half and we came into Orlando and she got up with a smile. I never have seen her since. She gripped my hand at the ramp and said, Sir, you help me. And I expect some of these mornings bright and fair. These old feet of mine become immortal. Walk down the shining, stretching avenues of that delightful city called the New Jerusalem in heaven. I may meet a lovely form and say, good morning, which one of the angels are you? And that form will say, I'm not an angel. You don't know me. No, I, I don't know you. Who are you? You remember that little stewardess that sat down in that plane that night with a broken heart and you talked to her about Jesus? I've been here 10,000 years. I'm the happiest person on earth. Glory be to God. I tell you, witness by dialogue every time you can. Demonstration. Charlie Dunaway told me, and his daughter came and introduced herself to me the other day. My, what a pleasure it was to meet Uncle Charlie's daughter here at this campground. Said to me one time he went to a Methodist church to preach second blessing wholeness. Heart burning and burdened to preach it. Every service thought he was going to have a riot, and nobody rioted, and the people began to seek him. Scared Uncle Charlie. 
He said, they're not getting it. It's too easy. Walked down to the country store one day and said to the merchant, said, what on earth? I never preached holiness in my life with as much ease and seen as many people seeking it. The merchant said, well, Brother Dunaway, we didn't hear the doctrine before, but said, you see that big old house yonder with that breezeway right through the middle of it? Said, there's an old man and an old woman live up there. And said, they've been a living what you've been a preaching for 40 years. And we needed somebody to come here and tell us what it was and how to get it. He said, it's not your preaching. said, they demonstrated it every day. Glory be to God. What? God has got to have his demonstrators. I heard, uh, I'll not call his name. I believe he's in heaven today. Slip of the tongue and he said what he did in the pulpit. But anyway, he said there was a man worked in a certain rubber plant in Akron. Worked side by side with an old cussing Roman Catholic. No religion, just a member of the Catholic Church. Cussed and drank and affairs with other women than his wife. And 25 years worked with him. This man was a Nazarene that worked beside him. Saved and sanctified. Had the experience good. And one day, that Catholic said to him, I'm in all kinds of trouble. And I notice you don't act like I do. And I've been watching you for a quarter of a century. What did your church give me that mine hasn't? That old Nazarene had never said a word to him about religion. He said, we're in a revival tonight. I'll come by and pick you up and let you see what we're doing. He took him. That old Catholic went to the altar and prayed through and got saved. And the next night went back and got sanctified. Then my friend said, the old buzzard, I'm glad he did wake up before the man dropped into hell. I kind of bowed my head in shame. I don't know that the Lord wanted him to dog that fellow. If he'd aggravated him and I'd dogged him every minute for 25 years, he'd have had him so mad he'd have gone to some other preacher. Might have got led astray. But he just took his cussing, took his cigarette smoke, took his strong alcoholic breath, knew he was an old adulterer, knew he was a gambler, said nothing about it but kept praying. And when the Holy Ghost got him broke down with a place that the chips got down, and they had to have help, he said, Mr. So-and-so, my church not giving me what you got. He said, come on, brother. Just like a Georgia peach up on the trees around Fort Valley, bathed with the dews and kissed by the golden lips of the sun and washed by the rain and tugged at by the wind and stood a little frost and didn't get killed. You go out there about peach picking time and you hardly can get your fingers to it and you got it in your hand. I want to tell you it'll have juice that'll run down over your chin and drip off the end of your beard. Glory be to God. Witnesses. Maturis. Warn the Barrett. Now if God wants you to go out and do dialogue work, you'll go to hell if you don't do it. But don't you just go out like one fella did and say, I, I won 25, I walked down this block. He said to me one night, said, I've been working around this arcade, and tonight I won 25 men to Christ on this street of, of, of Nashville. I didn't believe it. I hope he did. But I want to tell you, this thing of leading men to Christ, I saved a soul. No, you didn't. If you depend on me saving you, you're just well as in hell already. All I can do is tell you. All I can do is say, come here and get it. But it'll simmer down to a death battle and a death struggle with the rails in your throat before you get it.
The way you get to where you're sinking, you can't do a thing about it. And you cry out, oh, Jesus, I've been down twice. My lungs are full of water. Got much more breath. This is the last time to the surface. Please, Jesus. When you get that way, you'll find underneath you a helping hand. And he'll raise you up. Pump the water out of your lungs. Wipe the mud out of your face. Put some dry garments on. And you'll be like Jonah when he came out of the belly of the whale. He said when he got the seaweed pulled out of his hand and the sand out of his eyes, somebody show me the shortest road to Nineveh. Glory be to God. So I, I reiterate what the doctor said last night. Thousands of our people want a witness and know how to do it, but they can't do it. Tarry till you be endued. I've taught Guy Black School of Evangelism as a young Methodist preacher. I've taught evangelism and I've taught people how to do it and never did have one of them I ever felt yet graduated with honors. But what I want to tell you today is you have a siege of the Holy Ghost at this morning's bench. Let him fill you and then just go out to do like the fish does. It's natural for him to swim. Go out to do like the fledgling bird when he leaves the nest. It's natural for him to fly. You just do what's natural in the Holy Ghost. He'll see you through. And they'll raise up to call you blessed. Glory be to God. The bishop last night said when he met to his, went to Miss White, she said, Frank, they're talking about electing you bishop, and I don't think you're going to make it, but I want to pray for you. So if you don't make it, it'll not disappoint you. So, and he said, she got to pray, and I didn't care whether I was bishop ever or not. But I was determined to be God's man. We finished. My clock reads about 10 minutes past high noon. I want you to stand. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. It has been passed.